You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview podcast. This is Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. A suicide bomber attacked the crowd at a pop concert in Manchester last night, killing 22 people and injuring dozens. It is the worst case of terrorism on UK soil since the 7-7 bombings in London in 2005. The bomb went off as those attending the concert by US singer Ariana Grande were leaving the packed Manchester arena. Speaking outside Number 10 Downing Street, British Prime Minister Theresa May referred to the fact that many of those killed were children. We struggle to comprehend the warped and twisted mind that sees a room packed with young children not as a scene to cherish, but as an opportunity for carnage. Our London editor Dennis Staunton is in Manchester today. Dennis, events there are still unfolding, but could you update us on what we know so far? What we know is that uh, this uh, attack, which happened about 10.30 on Monday night, at the end of a, of a concert in the Manchester Arena, it was uh, a single suicide bomber uh, who uh, detonated this uh, bomb in the foyer of the, uh, of the venue. And as you say, uh, we know that there are 22 people dead, at least, and 59 injured. We don't know too much about the identity of those who have died, except that we know that uh, uh, many of those who were admitted to hospital uh, were children. And the, uh, as we speak now, two of the victims have been named. One was uh, 18 years old, a woman of 18 years old, and the other was a, a, an eight-year-old girl. And uh, and so so this is much we know. The so-called Islamic State have claimed responsibility. Those claims don't necessarily have that much meaning, but they uh, and and the police have made one arrest in Manchester as they try to establish whether uh, the perpetrator was part of a larger network. And you've written, uh, Dennis, today that the attack is shocking, even by the bloody standards of contemporary terrorism. How is it different from what we've seen before? The fact that uh, this concert uh, was, you know, most of the audience were teenage girls uh, or children. And so this targeting of teenage girls uh, is is something which, uh, you know, we haven't really seen something like that. The, the closest equivalent would be, say, the Bataclan bombing uh, you know, or attacks in Paris, which was a nightclub. Uh, and likewise in um, in Miami, the gay club in, in Miami some time ago. But, but in both of those cases, they were attacking adults, whereas here it really was children. So it's shocking in that respect. I think the other thing which is going to uh, alarm the security uh, people here is that uh, this was a bomb attack. And if you think back to most of the recent attacks in Europe, apart from the Paris bombings in 2015 and the Brussels bombings in 2016, most of these have been pretty low-tech. So you've had things like a vehicle mowing down pedestrians, like you had in Nice, like you had in Westminster, and indeed you had in Berlin, or else you've had either gun attacks or knife attacks. Uh, and these things, you know, you know, attacks like that are quite easy to organize, and they don't involve a lot of preparation. Any kind of a bomb really does, because first of all, you've either get, got to acquire explosives, which are often illegal, or to manufacture a bomb, and then you need to, uh, to be able to detonate it. And so... Uh, Most people are not able actually to detonate a bomb at precisely the moment they wish to do it without some kind of skill, some sort of training. So what I think the security people here will be wondering is, did we know this person? 
if we do know of this person, how did he manage to get all of this preparation done without anybody noticing? And uh, so I think those are the questions that are going to be asked. And, uh, and, and that is also indeed what would point to some suggestion that this person might at least have some kind of loose links, at least with, uh, with some other people. And is anything at all yet known about this man, um, about his background or who he is? Uh, nothing really has been said. There's, there have been some reports that he is either English or lived in England, which doesn't really tell you an awful lot. So we don't actually know uh, as yet anything about him. And, uh, and, and, so, and I imagine also that the police will hold on to that information for some time because while they're, uh, they're exploring, uh, you know, what they will, will be doing now, you know, the first question that they ask is, do we know him? Once they establish who he is, they start looking through all of his phone records, his emails, his social media contacts, and they really try to find out his entire network of people, anybody who knew him. And so they'll be targeting those people uh, and finding out as much as possible about them. And so while they're doing that, uh, they'll hold on to some information about his identity. And I think they have said that one a priority really, and, and Theresa, Theresa May repeated this, that a priority is, is to establish whether he was acting alone or as part of a network. I, and the, the claim of responsibility by Islamic State doesn't really throw a lot of light on that, does it? Because they tend to claim yeah, the, a lot of these things exactly. anyway. They often claim quite a lot. I suppose the other is the significance too, obviously, of finding out whether, whether he's part of a network or not is that the, the, the fear with all of these things is that this is just the first of a series of coordinated attacks, as we have seen elsewhere in Brussels and in Paris and elsewhere. And so, uh, so obviously the hope would be either that he's not part of a network or that if he is, that this network can be identified and shut down before any further, uh, you know, further attacks happen if they are indeed being planned. Now, you've mentioned some of the particular, I suppose, questions it, it poses for the British security services. And, and then on, on, a, on a wider scale, if you like, that Britain has been on the second highest alert level of severe um, for some time, which means a terrorist attack was considered highly likely. Is that under review now? And might it be raised even to the, the, the highest level? I think probably not, because the highest level really means that they know of a specific attack that is being planned. Uh, so the, the level that it's at now is, uh, you know, it's pretty high. It basically is saying that an attack is likely and that they need to be on the alert for that. So actually raising it to the, the very highest level wouldn't necessarily make any sense unless they actually were aware of a very of a specific plan for an attack. So I think they probably won't raise that to any extent. But what you, have, what you see already and uh, uh, here in Manchester, for example, is armed police at, you know, around the centre of the city. And I imagine that the same thing is happening in London and in other parts of, uh, of Britain today as well as, uh, as security is ramped up. And of course, the problem that the, uh, that the intelligence people have is that there are thousands of people who they have on a kind of a watch list. But they don't really have that many uh, people working in intelligence. You're talking about tens of thousands of people. And so that means that you can't actually keep all of the, uh, you know, the potential radicals uh, you know, under constant surveillance. And they have to make these choices about exactly who they're going to watch this week or this month. And so inevitably, people do slip through uh, their system. And so, but nonetheless, you know, this will reinforce calls for intelligence to be beefed up. And for uh, and for more money to be put into to those services. And is that is that the rather grim sort of implication we draw from this? Because the, the British um, 
uh, counterterrorism intelligence services are considered to be among the best. You know, they're very good at what they do and they obviously have a lot of successes. But does this show that really you're never going to have a, um, a complete you know, success rate in stopping these kind of attacks? Yeah, I think that's true that you actually never are. I mean, I think, you know, it's particularly true, obviously, of those low-tech attacks. I mean, it's very hard to stop somebody from uh, from getting a vehicle and getting into it and choosing to kill people. Uh, what they would have hoped, though, is that they might have more success in preventing people from making bombs and uh, and detonating them. And so, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it, you know, it, it is true that if you are living in a free, open, democratic society, you can't be 100% secure or 100% sure that something like this is not going to happen. Now, we heard uh, Theresa May speaking a short time ago following a meeting of the government's emergency uh, COBRA committee in Whitehall. Can you tell us, Dennis, what what is COBRA actually and and what came out of that meeting? Um, It's an emergency committee, uh, which, uh, you know, it's uh, it's made up of government ministers, senior officials and various people from the intelligence uh, services and the uh, and other branches of security. And what uh, what they do is that they, uh, you know, they they are summoned every time there is a particular threat and they then work out what exactly they ought to do about it. And so she's uh, they're going to meet later again today uh, to uh, to work out exactly, uh, you know, what other measures are necessary, uh, you know, once they've uh, once they've established what they know about uh, about this uh, perpetrator and any possible network that he's involved with. And now, um, finally, Dennis, this attack happened in the middle of a British general election campaign in which um, Theresa May, the prime minister, had had a couple of uncomfortable days and uh, um, the Labour Party, after a poor campaign, was starting to rise in the polls. Um, Will this attack, do you think, have any impact uh, on the campaign itself? I know party suspended campaigning for the day. I think it will have uh, have an impact on the election. As you say, uh, it came at a crucial moment because uh, Theresa May had just done a major U-turn on uh, one of the big uh, and most important policies in her manifesto. It was a very, a very, very embarrassing moment for her. She had a very difficult interview with Andrew Neil on the BBC on Monday evening. And uh, at the same time, Labour was moving up in the polls. So it, it, it appeared to be a moment where uh, Theresa May was uh, on the back foot and uh, Jeremy Corbyn seemed to be doing a bit better than most people expected. This attack, not only is it going to to halt campaigning, not just for a day, but I would imagine for a number of days and probably uh, until the weekend, uh, but it also means that uh, Theresa May is back on her strongest footing, in a way, on her strongest territory. She is a former interior minister, a former home secretary, and this is the uh, the area, the area of security and counterterrorism. This is where she feels most comfortable, and this is where she looks most prime ministerial. It's also one of the weakest spots for Jeremy Corbyn because of this campaign to paint him as being uh, somebody who pals around with terrorists, and indeed he was very friendly with uh, Sinn Féin and sympathetic to some people in the IRA in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And so uh, I think when people are looking at the two of them uh, at, and this question of who do you want to be prime minister, events like this, uh, uh, obviously horrifying as they are, they are probably uh, more inclined to help Theresa May than to help Jeremy Corbyn. OK, Dennis Taunton, we'll leave you there. Thank you for that. In Bethlehem today, on the first foreign tour of his presidency, Donald Trump reacted to the attack using characteristic language. So many young, beautiful, innocent people living and enjoying their lives murdered by evil losers in life. I won't call them monsters because they would like that term. 
they would think that's a great name. I will call them from now on losers because that's what they are. They're losers. The US president repeated a call that he had made in Saudi Arabia two days earlier for Arab countries to deal decisively with extremism. Drive them out. Drive them out of your places of worship. Drive them out of your communities. Drive them out of your holy land. Meanwhile in Washington, controversies over Russian interference in last year's election and the president's sacking of FBI Director James Comey continue to dominate the political scene. Hello? Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Hi, Chris. Suzanne Lynch is our Washington correspondent. Suzanne, given the perfect political storm brewing at home, Donald Trump was probably a relieved man when he boarded Air Force One last Friday to begin his nine-day foreign tour. His first port of call on his tour was Saudi Arabia, and he went from there to Israel. How has the tour been going for him so far? Yes, because it was undoubtedly a reprieve from uh, a lot of the activity that had been going on in the preceding 10 days, which were really frenetic. And there was just a series of assaults on Mr. Trump's credibility and, and even calls for impeachment from many on the Democratic side. So aides had been very keen to cast this visit as very much Trump in the mold of foreign leader. Uh, a lot of work had gone into this uh, trip. And I think it's significant. We need to note that he did choose uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel as his first foreign trip. Most presidents would t- typically go somewhere closer, perhaps Canada, perhaps Mexico. Uh, but I think it is a sign of uh, the state of relations with those countries uh, that the president chose Saudi Arabia as his first visit. In terms of taking the heat off, off him, as it were, I think the initial two-day visit to Saudi uh, went relatively well. Uh, the Saudi Arabia gave him a warm welcome. The, the kind of style of the visit, if you like, where uh, Trump was invited to partake in a, in a sword dance. Uh, it was quite lavish. Saudi Arabia paid spent tens of millions on this visit. Uh, suited Trump's style, suited his temperament. And as with all these foreign visits, it's very, very well choreographed. So there's not much room for blunder, as it were. But of course, um, once he arrived to Israel, uh, he went off script uh, during a press conference with Netanyahu, where he was asked uh, about the revelations that he had shared intelligence material with the Russian foreign minister two weeks ago during a meeting in the Oval Office. And it has since been revealed that Israel had been the source of this intelligence information. He was asked about this and uh, reacted quite badly and denied that he'd mentioned Israel, even though that was never in the original report. Uh, So I think things had been going well, if you like, when he was able to stay on script. But typically he was not. Uh, And then uh, I think that added to some of the worries that had been plaguing him the previous week. Yeah, that was quite an extraordinary um, moment when, beside Netanyahu, wasn't it, when he said, I never mentioned Israel, because nobody, of course, ever accused him of mentioning mm-hmm. Israel. The point was that the, uh, that he, he he did pass on intelligence to the Russians and mm-hmm. it was subsequently identified as, as Israeli intelligence. Um, mm-hmm. How much damage do you think he did himself um, with those kind of off-the-cuff comments? I think I, you're, I think the, the main issue, again, is this question of judgment and his lack of discipline. The very fact that he's going to engage in a conversation about a classified private information with Russia, again, uh, publicly in this form of a press conference, again, shows how out of his depth he is in terms of the protocol um, and the, the security issues around uh, intelligence, around, around his role as commander in chief, that, again, he just does not quite know the boundaries within which he is supposed to be working. So I think this was a a bad move by by Trump, if you like. Um, 
We've also seen his comments this morning on, on Bethlehem, in Bethlehem about the terrorist attack in Britain. Will this impinge some more on his comments in the coming days, particularly when he's in Rome? Um, it remains to be seen because I think the only way to keep Trump on message is to keep him tightly controlled, tightly choreographed. But of course, he is in the middle of a number of political minefields. I think Israel as well will be in a way disappointed, perhaps, at Trump. Obviously, Trump was a man who had promised to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He has not followed through on that. Uh, He talked about renegotiating the Iran nuclear deal. He has not followed through on that. So despite all his tough talk on Iran, which would have gone down very well in Israel, really in terms of a significant policy change from the U.S. on Iran or indeed on Israel, we haven't really seen anything of substance yet. Now, there was one change, I suppose, we noticed when he was in Saudi Arabia. We heard a clip there where he used fairly typically kind of strident language and would drive out the terrorists. But he'd certainly toned down some of the anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric that we heard from him during the election campaign and subsequently. Um, what do you think was behind that change? Um, I think what has happened in the last few months, um, and we saw this when Trump decided to intervene in Syria and dropping those missiles um, in the western part of the country, that he has now made the link, if you like, between uh, Muslim countries and the role that a lot of Muslim countries play in the fight against Islamic State, uh, particularly allies such as Saudi Arabia that are so crucial. So I think this is a link. The penny has dropped in terms of of this link, I think. And this is why um, we are seeing an effort by the Trump administration to to build bridges with Muslim countries. Um, And I think maybe we can also trace the influence of General McMaster, his very influential national security advisor who was put in place after the firing of Mike Flynn, that maybe are we seeing his uh, influence? Are we seeing the influence of the Defence Secretary, James Mattis? These are very... Very, very um, experienced men in their fields. Um, they seem to have Trump's ear and he seems to be listening to them. So we could maybe see it as a kind of a, um, a realisation on the part of Trump how important these allies are. Now, of course, that opens up its own problems. We have seen uh, Trump uh, make overtures to Turkey, uh, to Egypt and Saudi Arabia. All these countries had a very, very frosty reception from President Obama, mainly over human rights concerns. What are we what we are seeing in this trip that really Washington is prepared to overlook those concerns, essentially, um, and instead uh, promise and, and deliver on a number of deals. For example, in Saudi Arabia, we saw a very significant arms deal and investment decisions by Saudi uh, into American companies. So I think Washington, the Trump administration are very, very happy with those deals. And for the moment, the issue of human rights in that country really has been sidestepped in this trip. Now, um, he returns home next weekend. And um, as we mentioned, a lot of political developments in Washington. Even today, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, Suzanne. The the Trump administration Mm. presents its its first budget to Congress uh, today. Can you tell us, first of all, just what's involved in that, the kind of mechanics of the White House bringing Mm. forward its budget? um, uh, And where does it go from there? Yeah, it's 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 quite significant actually. Back in March, they revealed what they call a skinny budget, it's known as, which was basically the broad outlines. Um, and today, Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, is is presenting a much more fully drawn. Uh, budget plan. This now has to go to Congress and protracted negotiations will start. Now, it is worth saying that no president ever gets the budget, which they suggested. Um, it's very much an opening salvo and it's expected that this budget will be will be changed, will be shaped by a Congress. Um, so, but it is significant, I think, that Trump is not here when it's being unveiled. Now, officials here have stressed that this is just a matter of timing, etc. But if you like, is it Trump? Um, Trump would may, have, may not have stayed away if it was a good news story. 
story, if you like. Uh, and it, it suits uh, the president to be away when this uh, budget is announced. Because from what we know, Mick Mulvaney briefed journalists at, at, a white, at the White House on Tuesday ahead of this. And he was saying he's a very, very good speaker. He's, he's very um, persuasive. But uh, he was saying that this is... Um, this is going to be a new way of looking at the budget. It's about looking at the budget from the point of view of those people who pay tax, not those who are receiving things from the government. But what essentially we have is a government is a budget that is proposing major cuts to what they call anti-poverty measures here. So everything from food stamps to disability allowances, they are going to be cut under this budget proposal. Now, he um, obviously one of the issues with this is that this is going to affect the very voters or some of the very voters that elected Trump. Uh, so I think politically it's very, very interesting uh, to see how this plays out in terms of his support base. One of the other issues that economists have been quick to point out, and it, it's very, very obvious, that it says it's going to balance the budget. But it's, it's again, the Trump administration and, and the senior advisors, financial advisors that are in the Trump administration have consistently argued that they see GDP returns at 3%. Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has said that. And this uh, estimate is here in this budget. But a lot of people believe that is not going to happen. So this is pie-in-the-sky budget making, that the books are not balancing. And the big cuts... Um, and, and extra spending that the budget is suggesting in areas like defence, for example, um, that these just don't add up. So I think um, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny over this budget, and this is a long way to go. It's always a very protracted process, um, and never more so, I think, under Trump. Um, so it will be a long time, as I say, before we get the fi finished product. But this conversation is going to start on Tuesday here in Washington. And as you mentioned, the, I mean, the budget balancing is probably an issue that um, uh, his support base probably don't uh, identify mm. with or care about too much. But um, if they're hit in the pocket, um, this could be, do you think this could be the sort of the beginning of a time when, pe when people who supported him will start to, uh, you know, question the, the stance they took in the, in the election last November? Yes, I mean, it depends on how this is cast and how much the media covers this. But for example, he's looking for cuts to Medicaid. That's the federal health programme for poor people. Um, but he is protect protecting Medicare. That's the, the health programme for older people and also security, uh, social security for older retirees, essentially. He's kind of protecting that because Mick Mulvaney said he promised to protect those. Um, now, what, what Mick Mulvaney did say as well was that it's all about, he gave the usual kind of Republican line about, oh, there's a dig dignity to work. People have to be encouraged to work. And uh, he's clamping down on issues, for example, like you will need a social security number to claim certain benefits for your child. Uh, so again, it's linking into his whole clampdown on immigration. But you're right. I mean, I think this is exposing the contradiction at the heart of Trump's economic policy. I mean, he will argue, as a lot of his officials will argue, that really uh, the, the other side to this is that they are going to be creating more jobs and that they are going to be giving jobs to this swathe of the population by bringing American jobs back home, etc., by revamping manufacturing. And this will offset, if you like, the need uh, for benefits from the sector of the community. Um, but this is very big picture stuff. So I think you're right. I think it will. It may start trickling down to his core supporters, um, but it will be, as I say, a good few months before the actual final figures are out. So I think they will be able to hide behind, if you like, um, these promises for, for a while longer. And, and finally, Suzanne, to come back to then, uh, the, the issue of Russian interference in the election and everything that flows from that, um, that will also be um, in the news today as well when the former CIA director, John Brennan, um, testifies before the House Intelligence Committee. Um, he was director of the CIA and under the Obama um, presidency. What are we expecting to hear from John Brennan's testimony today? Will it be significant? 
Well, we, we some of the testimony will be in open session, but most of it will be in closed session. But that may leak out uh, from uh, from Congress once that closes at around lunchtime. Um, but he had concerns himself about Russian interference. We know when he was former, when he was the head of the CIA. Uh, so that is promises to be very informative. But there have been other developments here as well. There are still issues around Mike Flynn. He has basically said that he is not going to testify uh, publicly in front of Congress over the Russian investigation. He previously asked for immunity uh, to testify this was not granted just um, and now he is remind, uh, exercising his right not to testify just remind, uh, people, just remind people he was he was Donald Trump's national security advisor who was who was sacked over withholding information essentially about um, contacts mm. with, with Russian officials yeah Exactly. Mm. And then he more recently was back in the news again when it emerged two weeks ago that Donald Trump pressed the FBI director, James Comey, to drop the investigation into him. So a lot of people feel he's the smoking gun, that he's a lot of information. He was he was 24 days as national security advisor under Trump before he was fired. And during that time, he had access to most classified information in the country. And so this is a bit of a setback really to, to the committee uh, that they cannot uh, comply him to testify. They are looking at their legal options to see if they can. Uh, but that is quite a quite a setback. There have been further revelations about Flynn also uh, today saying that he misled the Pentagon. Um, this is before he started working for Trump, but about his links with foreign governments uh, in order to get security cle- clearance there. So this is hugely, um, this, is, this is wide ranging in terms of his involvement. And again, intriguingly, it, there are reports that Trump himself is now uh, interviewing possible legal uh, figures outside counsel, essentially, to advise him as president on what's to come with this investigation that's now been announced with um, Bob Mueller heading up as special counsel the investigation into Russia. So look, when Trump arrives back, um, we are going to see a renewal of interest in the Russian story. And I think the next major thing to watch will be when James Comey testifies in Congress has been suggesting he may do it after next week. Uh, so if that was to happen, I think that would, could be potentially explosive for Mr. Trump. OK, you're making me wonder, Suzanne, if, if uh, Donald Trump would want to go home at all next weekend. Um, <laughs> thanks for that analysis. Thank you. That's it for this week. For more on these stories, go to irishtimes.com. Until next week, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. You're listening to the Irish Times.